0: Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, We all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Ground Buster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at GreenBallTires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiry. Brian Fry, welcome to ATV Talk. How are you, sir?
1: Hey, Leonard, how are you doing? Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure, brother. You're one of the you're one of the early legends from Southern California that everybody that that lived in our area or even around the world knew of you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I got in at the beginning, I guess, so uh and then we had a lot of TV time too back then so that that helped a lot as far as people knowing out of state other countries well the
1: the Mickeys one of the coolest things about the Mickeys was is I got to do a little bit of traveling when when Mickey's was still around and it would pop up on the television and you're in a foreign country oh really yeah and you get to see Mickey's so ATV racing or the stadium racing was, was awesome. And it helped ATVs grow throughout the world just because of those shows. Um, if we could ever do a Mickey's race series again, or if they ever had something like that again, it'd be really great.
2: Yeah. I was, I was more, I learned later in life, people were like, yeah, I used to always watch you racing speedway. That's what everybody always said. I seen you on TV racing speedway because did that for four years with, Suzuki deal when they were uh, paying for the televised. Right. That lasted 85 through uh, 86, 87, 88. So that was all Suzuki money and Suzuki uh, paid for a televised. And that's that's where I had a lot of people, you know, in future after racing. So, yeah, I used to watch you on TV, racing Speedway all the time. So that's where most of the people recognize me from the television. Speedway, mm-hmm.
1: Beans, did you have a motorcycle in background?
2: Did you speedway
1: a motorcycle as well as an ATV?
2: Never tried one. Never tried one. I I, I wanted to at one point, but I never did.
1: I, 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 I just don't... I flat-tracked motorcycles, but I just don't see how you can... I mean, it just takes big balls to do that, doesn't it?
2: It's... Very difficult from what everybody I've talked to, the speedway guys, because everything's backwards. It's like you gas it to get the wheel spinning to get you sliding, and if you leave it spinning down the straightaway, you don't go anywhere. you got to let off the gas to go faster. You let off, and then it starts hooking up. And if you let off too much, then you're flipping over backwards on a wheelie. you got no brakes or anything to stop that from happening. It's all throttle control. I remember uh, McGrath tried it. And I can't remember the girl's name. She was really fast at race speedway. She was a little cute blonde girl, probably about eighteen. And uh, there was a video of McGrath going out to uh, Maley's ranch, and and he's like, "I'm gonna try my first speedway bike. and I'm gonna get my butt kicked by a girl here." And you know, that girl was showing him how to ride it, and he was he just looked like an amateur out there. I mean, being Jeremy McGrath, the Supercross star, and you know who he was. He was like, man, this is totally different than riding a motocross bike.
1: So how different was it for you on the, on the quad, you know, on the speedway? I mean, you guys ha- had those things hooked up and were were you able to drive around the whole oval just wide open?
2: Well, the first year was just figuring out how to do it, you know, because I never did any any oval track racing on a, on a three-wheeler or a quad. So it was all experimentation in 85, and we were tying our rear suspension down with a tie-down. and You know, of that didn't work very well, but that's all we knew back then. And then uh 86, uh I just put lower mounts on my lower A-arms to move the shocks out and lower the front that way, and it made it real rigid so you didn't have to have a sway bar, which, you know, sway bars weren't even – I mean, I think there were a thing in 86 on a quad at that point, maybe, but I don't remember if they were. And then I uh, had the uh, lowering struts for the rear that came into play. I think I did something different on my shock, though, because the lowering struts made them real soft in the rear. I did something else. I can't remember what I did to, to make it lowered in the rear. And then 87s were really played in where I decided to really figure out how to make a quad go around in circles and I. And I used the sprint car ideas of so built by 500 quad into all staggered, offset, and staggered tires, and different size rims on the rear. You know, with the same Hoosier, you put a narrow tire on the narrow rim on the left side, put a 10 inch wide on the right. Even though you're using a tr- uh, wide tri track, but the with the I think it was a 7 inch wide on the left, I ran and a 10 inch on the right all weird stuff, but it made the – no, that's, sorry, it's the opposite. It was the 7-inch was on the outside and the 10-inch was on the inside. So it made the inside tire uh, not as tall as the outside with the 7-inch rim on that same tire. And then the, I've had the uh, Hoosier front tires. So I bought the staggered offset, big right and on the smaller front left front. And that's, that's when that really started going fast on on speedway track was when I got all the stagger in with the sway bar and all that and lowered down. That's, that was, uh, that was a year that I think I won every heat race and every main event until the championship night. It seemed like every, every year I'd be winning the points and then championship night, somebody wanted it worse than me and take me out and put me in the wall or put me upside down or something in the first turn. I had some bad luck in the championship nights. My buddy Andrew Buck gave me one punt through the wall one time, <laughs> but we still had fun afterwards. Still, still hung out, you know, even though he took me out. <laughs> that,
1: that that's that's the story of a lot of people's you know gigs. They do great until the moment. So you could lead the points in in the series and not win the final day and and lose the title.
2: Yeah, the final night was the champion. So it didn't matter if you had had more points than everybody. They kept points to decide whether you get a race the next weekend or not. But I think it was top four come back or top four or top eight. I can't remember. I think there were 16 riders that would race or something like that. And they'd take half of the from the week before and be in. Then you didn't get in a say it was uh, 16 riders and had eight. If you got eight, in then in your ninth you'd have to get on the list to get back in. But I was I I think only one time I didn't make make it in automatic the next time because my engine blew up or something like that. I DNF from a motor blow up. But all the other times you were the guy I was one of the guys. I'd say yeah there's there were some guys that were pretty fast. There, everybody got really fast like an eighty eight and then after that, then some other guy, you know, then what it wasn't Suzuki, it was, was uh, you could ride a Honda or whatever you wanted, because Suzuki backed out after 88. And then some really guys got really fast, like Steve Owens. He was real fast. He had an alcohol-burning 250R motor. That bike was really fast. He put a lot more effort into it than I did as far as making his bike faster, because I was kind of doing it for fun after 88. I think I stayed in the Speedway till 90, I believe, but I just did that for fun.
1: How much of your racing career was, was devoted to the dollars versus just going out and racing?
2: Um, I would say once the dollars ran out, they weren't the sponsorship money wasn't there. I kind of lost interest in it. That's why I still did Speedway after 88 but I didn't do the motocross portion because I wasn't making any money, even though, you know, I could win races, but there's just no no money in the sport after Suzuki pulled out. They had all that contingency for those years, and, you know, you make I could make a living at it, not at the work. In 88, I was working again and spending part of my paycheck to go race, and it didn't worthwhile. Right. It,
1: it, it didn't make sense, right?
2: No, after at that point, you know, it's kind of like having a job and boss well, say you can work, but you ain't getting paid. Yeah,
1: you know? so, yeah. What's what's that all about, right?
2: Yeah, that's why I kept the speedway around because I always enjoyed the speedway, and his it Ascot was thirty minutes from my house, and go down there and make three hundred bucks in the '80s in an evening race, and so it was, it was still paying well, and it was uh, cheap. You know, cheap entry to get in and cheap cheap to drive down there because it's so close. But, yeah, I continued the Speedway stuff for quite a while. And actually, me and my wife, before we're married, we promoted some Speedway racing at Ascot with a go-kart organization. And I organized the quads. That was like 89, I think. I started that when I was in a cast from a broken leg on a dirt bike. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't get a race my first season that we promoted. Um, and then I, that was 89. So in 90 is when I got it, I was doing the promoting and the racing. So I was making money promoting it, and I was making money in the purse money. Basically, I was paying myself.
1: <laughs> well, that's, that's a good thing, right?
2: Yeah, if I won, I had to win, but yeah, I was still winning a lot on Speedway. So it was pretty lucrative.
1: Well, that's that's what it's all about. You also have a history in motorcycles that most people don't know about.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, motorcycles started in '72 when I was nine on a uh, TS 125, 1972 Suzuki. It was uh, the one year one year before the '73 RM 125s came out which I was totally bummed after the RMs came out. I was like, (laughs) I got the TS, which had all the lights and everything on it, you know, because they didn't make dirt bikes in 72. You had to make your own dirt bike. Right. uh, Just like six months later, here comes the the TM-125. It was a TM, not the RM. It was a TM-125, came out in 73. And I was down at the Suzuki shop drilling at that thing every day. But then they came out with the Git Kit, which made your TS like a RM. I mean TM. You me. I keep saying RO. Oh, I'm used to that. But they, uh, the the Kit, you had a cylinder head, carburetor, expansion chamber, air box. and if I remember right, it was like $180 for all that. And my dad yeah. my my dad bought that for my Christmas present. So put all that on the on the TS, and it was all it was all TM parts that you could bolt on your TS and kind of make it halfway a TM. But that's where it started there. And then uh, I was a big kid when I was young. I was, I was 12. I got a, a 1975 brand-new uh, MX250B monoshock the first year they came out. So that was eighth grade. I was already riding a 250 in eighth grade. And that's that's when I uh, rode that till I think I was 14 Then ended up uh, – started racing, and then got hurt right away. Actually, I got hurt in the field the first time. The throttle stuck wide open. Brother uh, helped me work on my bike and clean the carburetor. And the old round slide carburetors back then, underneath the cap, there's a rubber gasket. And he forgot to put that back in. So when I was riding in the field by our house where we had a motocross track we used to ride at with all the kids from the neighborhood, he uh long straightaway you're you're wide open in fifth gear and there's a big sand berm at the end of turn and i was going wide open i was racing another friend of mine he was like 19 years old he had the same kind of bike he lived in the neighborhood and uh we were drag racing down that straightaway on the track and coming into the turn i left it on a little longer to beat him into the turn and when i let off the bike was still wide open and what happened is a slide the cap came off and the slide came up above the pins in the carburetor and uh, the slide twisted. So it was stuck wide open. And I was just like trying to get stopped because there was a bunch of trees and all kinds of obstacles I was going to hit, you know, and I was you know, like six mile an hour or something like that in fifth gear. And I was getting closer and closer and I couldn't stop it. I didn't think quick enough to pull the clutch in. And I just grabbed brake, trying to get it to stop, in the front end watch, and I broke my humerus here. My arm was around backwards behind my back, but I was, oh. came up on the, you know, I was fourteen, and that happened. And uh, so I went through the healing on that, and I just raced a couple times before that at Irwindale, and uh, I think I was, it took me about two or three months, and I was back i wasn't supposed to ride for like six months but i couldn't my mom my mom and stepdad couldn't keep down so i was back riding like three weeks after i was out of a cast and uh it was the last night irwindale when i was 14 it would have been 77 and uh i had a bad crash there and i and i broke my tib fib and i was knocked out cold a track and when i came to all that was ringing in my head and my blur vision. I tried to stand up and I didn't know I had a broken leg. I didn't even know where I was at probably at that point I was coming out of getting knocked out. And when I stood up, my, uh, my bones basically were broken half. So when I stood up, they went like this in my right leg. Oh, and then it went like this. Oh, it it tore a bunch of nerve damage. It it, it totally destroyed. I, my leg was huge, swollen. When I was in the hospital, I was in intense care, and they had me sedated for like four days. All I remember was them waking me up and sticking me with a pen in my feet, asking me, "Can you feel this? Can you feel this?" And I woke up on. I happened on a Friday night. I woke up on a Tuesday or a Monday. And uh, after everything was said and done, I, my parents told me that. Um, told my parents that they might have to amputate my leg because the circulation wasn't going. My my foot was just enormous; it was full, full of uh, blood and everything. So that that was a uh, that was a bad one. And then I had uh, it took me three years to recuperate from that, and I had two surgeries. That a I didn't heal. I had to do a bone graft, take bone out of my hip, put it in my leg, and uh they, it, it had a growth to the bone, but it didn't harden. So they had to go in there and remove all the all the growth. And then they packed new bone chips out of my hip. And this was like, it was like seven months after the break. And that's when they did the bone graft surgery. And then I spent another six months in a cast. And then back then they put you full length cast up to your crotch. And, uh, my toes started curling under in the after I had my surgery in that next six months of healing, and I was asked. We were talking to my doctor every time. Say, my toe, why are my toes curling? He said, Well, that's because you're in a cast so long. They'll straighten out when you get out and start walking. Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. They ended up what they call hammer toes. So my toes basically were upside down. They were curled all the way under my... I was walking on my toenails. Uh, it was what happened. I had nerve damage from when the bones did that. It did a bunch of nerve damage and it, and everything atrophied. So it just started... My nerves started pulling my, my toes in underneath. And then I had to have corrective surgery, which was like half years after the accident. And they go and they all my toes out. They cut the flexor tendons from the end of my toes. They reattached back beyond where they fused my toes. They put pins out of all my toes. So I had pins hanging out of my toes for three months. And then what they did is fuse my toes. So my my toes don't move. Wow. Since since that time, I basically... And my foot atrophied up. Like, my right foot's a 10-10. a little over 10, and my left is a 13. I got like a club foot. But wow. that, that basically, I had that from you know 14 to 17, so my whole racing career, I raced with that damage. So that, that eliminated me from any kind of running or jogging. I couldn't... I had to do life cycles or bicycles for my cardio. I couldn't, I couldn't run or jog from that point on.
1: Did that ever deter you from riding?
2: No, it made me want it more. Uh, I I had a love for motocross. I I loved it, and I wanted to I wanted to be a pro. You know, that was that was my dream. And you, you, go ahead,
1: you made it, didn't you?
2: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I made it all the way to pro on dirt bikes. I I built a TT five hundred. I used to go to the uh, used to go to Carlsbad and watch the uh, Four Stroke Nationals every year. And I was a huge fan of the thumper bikes. I bought a TT500 to go to Glamis with a paddle tire. We always did the dunes since the early 70s. And uh, then I started getting... I I was checking out Ricky Johnson's uh, ProTec. He had a TT500-600 engine in the ProTec with... uh, 12, 13 inches of travel, aluminum swing arm, you know, uh, motocross uh, forks, rear shock. So I ended up building my TT 500. I put Simon Sporks on it, Fox Air Shocks, uh, Calfab aluminum, two inch longer, or two and a half inch longer arm, and then uh, built a TT uh, Protect on her TT motor. Uh, one of the kids I went to school with, his brother, I think his name was Marcus Martino, and he he was the the mechanic for the head mechanic at ProTech, and I went ended up going to school with his younger brother. So he introduced after we started talking about the four stroke national, He's like, "Oh, my brother built Ricky Johnson's bike; he's his mechanic." And they lived right here in Whittier, so I, I hooked up with his older brother. He was in his twenties, and uh, and he ended up uh, helping me build the motor showing me how to build it so i built this rad thumper and was racing saddleback on it all the time but it was short-lived because the thing was blowing out third gear and every time i blow out third gear it was like two three hundred bucks back then to fix it and i was like 17 years old and i I'd, I'd quit school in my junior year and went and got a job working for a company called rebel smith he was a distributor that sold to dealers in SoCal. So I was working full-time as a delivery guy. i pull the orders and deliver to like 25 to 30 dealers a day, three days a week. So I was doing that and then racing the motocross, and I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17. I took the GED that summer to get my, my, uh, my high school diploma. And I went racing full-time at 17, and then the bike was breaking all the time, so I parked it and ordered a 81 Suzuki 250 floater that were coming out the new year. The following year, that was 81, so that was 1980 on the thumper. 81, I got on the Suzuki, and I started an intermediate class, and I was winning all the time, doing real well, running up front and i ended up moving myself up to the pro class by uh 81 i think it was september september of 81 I so i raced about eight months in the intermediate and then i moved up to the pro class and, and then 82 i bought a 480 honda was riding the 500 pro class on that and riding my 250 and the 250 pro mainly a lot of saddleback racing and went to different places Indian dudes and stuff but Saddleback was one of my favorite. Carlsbad, too. And uh, it was like probably June of 82. Uh, that was when Team Tam was his first year doing the tank, the race team. Right. And, and uh, he came up to me and started talking to me at the races at uh, Orange County Raceway one evening. And he said he was going to hook me up and give me a ride. So I ended up going on Team Tam in June of 82, I believe it was. I was raced with him, and he said he was going to put me in the Nationals and Supercross in 83, and I thought I had a ride with him. The last race I rode for him was San Diego Supercross. The, remember they used to on Sunday, the CRC day? Yep. The, they'd have amateur through pro. So I, I won the 500 pro class for Team Tam and that day, and – my two teammates in the 250 class were uh uh Mike Shoemaker and uh Dean Cates. And they got Shoemaker won the won the 250 class, and Cates got second in the 250 class. So we did as good as we could do, right? Right. Uh, got a ride, Honda's giving bikes to Tam the next year and all the parts, uh, through Dave Arnold at, at American Honda. And he called me in, in late December and said, Well, we got a new team and you're not part of it what yeah. that uh that damper and everything because i was used to not working and racing full-time and then i got left with no bikes or anything so i was like oh i gotta get a job now and finance a bike and i started looking at it and i was actually i was talking to dave arnold and told him what happened and, uh, and he's like, really, he did, you know, cause he thought I was going to be on the team too. He, when he made the budget for all the bikes, I was supposed to get like for three bikes or four bikes that year. And, uh, and then a bunch of parts, you know, that was just kind of what each rider was going to get right through the team. It was be you know, Bob's bikes, but right, be Bob cams bikes, but that's, that's the kind of deal I was going to get the next year. I thought. And pulled, the rug got pulled out from underneath me. So his budget was spent at Honda. So Dave, Dave Arnold at Honda, he said, well, I got a guy back east that I want to sponsor too. And I'm trying to get an extended budget from Honda Japan. I'll put in for you too. I'll, I'll ask him to extend the budget for two riders. And for... I don't know, a month and a half, two months, he kept telling me, do you call me every day if you want? You're not bugging me. Just, you know, anytime you want to know what's going on, give me a call. Every time I call him, he'd say, it's looking good. I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to do it. It's looking good. I was just like, yeah, cool. You know? And then I got the call that, Hey, they turned it down. If you want to do it next year, I'll be here for you. And I was just like, man, it was already two, three months into the season and I would didn't have anything, didn't have it, you know. I was working for Bob Tam part time a little bit just for cash, get a little extra cash as well. He had a, a warehouse business. I'd worked there a couple hours in the morning and I'd go practice in the afternoon. And he let me go out of his out of my job too, two weeks after he took me off the team. He didn't want me around anymore, I guess. So I was like hmm just kind of distraught and depressed over the whole thing. I said, well, I can't do it 100% like I've been doing. I don't even want to do it. I decided to hang it up and, and I was going to not race anymore. And then the ATV racing came a few years later.
1: So, how did you get on a three-wheeler? That's a funny story.
2: So, I bought a three-wheeler and a uh, new Honda water cooled one. I had, actually I bought an 82 air cooled one too. Honda and right. i was using that for Glamis and stuff. You know, like I said my parents they had a sand rail and stuff the whole time. We had a big group of people that always go to Glamis, so I got the 82 and was, you know, using that for Glamis to keep me entertained. And uh, then when the water cooled ones came out, they came out in the 85 came out in September of 84 and I got one of the early ones, right? One of the first ones. Right. Uh, That was just for the dunes, just to, you know, screw around in the dunes. I still didn't have a dirt bike then. I wasn't riding at all on dirt bikes. So we're just doing the dune thing. And uh, a bunch of my friends were racing Corona Raceway on trikes all the time. And I didn't have anything to do one evening. So I said, I'll go out and watch these guys race, you know? So they're, you know, their bikes are all set up. For race and how they used to do the three wheelers, that wide axle, you know, race, race motors, everything. Yeah, their bikes all set up, everything you could do to for a race three wheeler. <laughs> so I went out there and watched them race, and then after the races were over, you know, we're out. I was out there partying, drinking some beer, and I said, "You guys suck." I go, I can smoke <laughs> you. I could smoke you on my stock three wheeler. The only thing I had on that thing was a twist throttle. It still had the lights, everything on it, stock tires, everything. Stock axle, nothing done to it. Off the showroom floor to a stall. So they're like, well, come out and race. I like, I don't want to race a tricycle. I was giving them all kinds of crap, you know. And So it turned into a $50. Well, we'll bet you, you know. I'll bet you you can't beat us because I was just running my mouth and screwing with them, bench racing in the pits. Right. I bet, I bet my three different friends 50 bucks each, each one of them, I said, I'll come out and race. And if I beat all you guys, you guys each give me 50 bucks. And if not, I'll pay each one of you 50 bucks. And uh, so I came out the next week and smoked them all. I got a road novice class, right? Because I didn't know where I was at or anything. And I wanted to race those guys. And that's what they were racing, right? Right. I wasn't planning on racing three wheelers. It was just a dumb bet, right? So I went out there and I ended up lapping second place in both motos. and the, on the three wheeler on a stock bike, I was messing with them on the starting line. I said, Hey, if you, I'd flip my headlight on. I said, Hey, you see a light coming behind you bouncing? That's me laughing. You get out of the way. Yeah. And sure as shit, I laughed them all. <laughs> I ended up laughing second. I got it second place, both motos, even though I won the moto. <laughs> so, and I was like, Wow, that was kind of fun, actually. So I said, Well, I'm going to go race three wheelers and Let's set the bike up. So we set the bike all up to go do the Golden State, and I said, "I'm going to ride pro class, not not novice class. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to go race, rig, make money on it." So anyway, then uh, Alan Knowles at CT was just starting his uh, motor building skills, and he offered. We were friends since I was like 17, I knew him through Rebel Smith and from the shop. Actually, he's there all the time, and. Uh, so anyway, he he offered to build my motor, and and Barry who me and him, grew up together. So he he bought a three-wheeler, too, and we we're both going to do the same thing. And Alan said he'd build both our motors and do – you know, we just buy the parts, and he'll do all the labor for free. But he was – didn't have his jetting down or something because every race burned a hole in the piston In my bike and Barry's bike, we had identical motors from Alan. So I'm not bad-mouthing Alan, It's just a fact of how it went down, right? Sorry, Alan, <laughs> if you're watching. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, so, you know, Golden State takes you, you know, Hollister, Huron, we're, Madera. We're going up, doing some traveling. And coming back, a long drive with the holes in the piston every time was getting old, you know. And uh, the last race I went up to was Hollister, and that's when the quads came out. They're just that month. And one of the guys I knew that was racing three wheelers, he was he bought a quad, so he was up there with racing it the first time for him. And I said, "Let me try that thing after the races are over." So I went over and rode it, hit some jumps on that thing, and one time I kicked and I was like kind of into one, and I landed like on the left or right front tire. You know, was only one tire hitting, is like out of control. Right, if I was. Coming down to that trajectory on a three wheeler, I'm I'm gonna kill myself, right?
1: <laughs> and
2: I landed on this quad, and the thing just sat down. I was like, "Oh, that was pretty amazing." So I went back and I hit that jump again as hard as I could, and I was like, "Oh man, you can get a lot weigh with a lot on these quads compared to a three wheeler." <laughs> uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. I was in the Suzuki shop picking up a brand new quad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's that's. Kind of how I it was like a whirlwind how I ended up racing quads. Wasn't planned, it wasn't expected, it was just it just happened.
1: How long did you keep racing the the did you stop racing the the quads in motocross in 88 when the when the Suzuki money went away from the Golden State stuff?
2: Um I raced I raced in 88. I raced uh I know I did the Rose Bowl Mickeys. Um and my last race was, I was I, at that point, I was, I had a job then I was working construction doing concrete work and, uh, you know, I was, I was spending money on racing and I was just like, man, this, just ain't working. I used to make a living doing this. And now I'm making a living doing something else and paying for, you know, my, my quad racing and not coming out ahead. So that's, uh, I was kind of getting really burned out on it at that point. Even though I was, even if I won, I still wasn't making enough money to cover the costs. So I think that my last—I know my last race was at Glen Helen. I don't remember if it was a big event or anything. I think it was probably. But I went out there and rode practice, and I came in and I told my wife, who was my girlfriend at that point. We didn't get married till ninety-two. I was 88, so I told her, I said, you know, and I said, I just didn't have the desire to be here anymore, and I, you know, and I never had that feeling before where I just didn't want to be there, and first moto, I got a flat tire, and I came in I DNF because of the flat, I got a rear flat, like on the first lap or something, and I came in, I said, that's my sign, I go, I'm loading up, I'm done. He's like, what? You done? You we're gonna go home? And I said, No, I mean I'm done. I'm done racing. I'm not gonna race quads anymore on, on motocross. So that's that was when I stepped aside from it and just said I am not gonna keep doing the speedway stuff.
1: Wow. That's that I mean, that kind of the flat tire, not wanting to be there or not feeling it, and then getting a flat tire. That's that was my sign. Tire.
2: It's like yep. You didn't get you didn't get tumbled and get hurt, you're not going to, go to the hospital and you don't want to do it anymore. It's time to hang it up. Right. And I actually ended up selling my 88 quad because I just bought an 88 quad to race that season, and that's how it went. I was just like, I'm done. Ended up selling that to the guy I worked for in construction. <laughs> nice. Was good, he was a good friend of mine, but he ended up buying my quad for me. Did you was it a Honda or a Suzuki? The Honda. It was an 88 Honda. I bought I had an 87 Honda because I went and bought that after uh, after I didn't get a ride with Suzuki and the factory team in '87 after riding for him in '86 and and the support Suzuki team that me and Dent were on. Right. Yeah, they they didn't give me the ride and they gave it to Putman and Watts. Watts was Watts deserved it. Putman not so much. You know? And uh he's never beat me in any races that I can remember of. I was kind of pissed off that I didn't get the ride with Suzuki. So I said, well, I'm going to race against Suzuki. I'm going to race against him on a Honda. That's when I went and bought an 87. (laughs) But you know what? I never really gelled on the Honda like I did the Suzuki. Really? I just, I don't, I don't know what it was about the Honda. I even went with a tall seat on a Honda, like a desert seat. Because I'm so, I'm so tall and big. I just felt cramped on that with the stock seat, how low they were and all that. I don't know. It just it felt more like a three-wheeler to me than a than a quad. The Suzuki fit, I had my Suzuki set up like I ran a tall seat on my Suzuki though too, on my two fifty. And I loved it because it made it feel like a dirt bike. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I ran I ran on one of those high flight seats, the seat foam. Right. Yeah. But I really liked it because I could grip it my knees like a dirt bike
1: how tall are you
2: now <laughs> well back now, when we were yeah i think i shrunk about two inches probably I, I was six six three yes you no little guy no yeah. i was i was six
1: three 200 pounds when i was racing wow that's that's what gave me
2: the nickname the animal really because you just could manhandle it yeah I and mean, when it was rough that's that's when i shined on rough tracks like Carlsbad and stuff like that when the rougher it got the faster i'd go wow that's kind of just... like donnie banks donnie's the same way you know tall and lanky and he could hang it out he's got a totally different riding style than me though he he hangs his ass over the rear grab bar i ride it more more neutral
1: yeah, but you're that's still that the the height, the leverage, the strength. You know, Ween in six five. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but your size hurt me though in Mickey's, because like Denton, you know, he's 135 pounds. <laughs> you know, I I come into the turn on Denton and on him, and when we take off out of the corner, he'd be five bike lengths ahead of me. It was like cat and mouse at Mickey's. I never had any luck at the Mickey's tracks. That that wasn't my type of track.
1: That that was a lot of fun, though. I mean... When they you were could... fun.
2: Yeah, but I never had any good success at Mickey's. That's, more motocross and speedway was my, my forte.
1: I like the Mickey's because you can show up, race, take the machine home, and... If they didn't throw it on its lid, it you washed it, and it was ready to go.
2: Yeah, what I didn't like too was the uh, time qualifying. I I just couldn't. I'd ever put down fast laps. Like you got to go out there and do two fast laps, right? Right. That just wasn't me. When the gate dropped, that's when I went fast. It was like Mm -hmm. practice. You know, it's more like a practice to me. It's like I don't know. I had a different. Switching me, you know, when the gate would drop, that's when I was on. But to go out and just say, oh, okay, I got to hit two of my fastest laps, I just, it didn't gel with me very well. It didn't do well at that, I don't think.
1: That's, the, you know, I mean, some people struggle with that part, you know?
2: Yeah. 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 When the race is on, it's like a different mindset than going out there and, you know, trying to go fast, By you're the only one on the track, you know? It's a little bit different.
1: Right. When you were racing at that point in time in ATVs, a lot of the racers were the developers also. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. What were the things that you were were working on for to help your machines perform better?
2: Everything. You got to figure when we started racing the quads in 85, they were pretty stocked. know, The first races, they were stocked, so... It all evolved and over time, but Greg Clark showed up at uh, eighty five at l a Coliseum with a uh, with bars, you know, which were nerf bars, right He had these bars that just kind of came back and ended. They didn't have loops like they normally do you know they didn't loop around by the rear tire right and he didn't have anything inside where the nets are, right And I was like, wow, those look. Like they'd work good, you know, because you don't lock your tires like open wheel, you know, like open wheel, you don't lock tires and run over each other, right? But I looked at that, I'm like, well, if you lose your foot down there, you're gonna be tangled up in that nerf bar, you're gonna break your damn leg, right? Right. Uh, so, uh, well, at that race, actually at Mickey's, everybody was protesting Clark Mickey Thompson. And Mickey made him take the nerf bars off because everybody's saying he's gonna use them for a battery. And I'm like looking at them, and everybody's saying that it's unsafe to have those. I'm like, Well, not really. If everybody had those, it'd be a way safer because you wouldn't be, you know, locking open wheel tires and doing flips down straight away. Right. So they made him take them off and he couldn't race with them and uh I went back. After that, I was talking to Graydon, Steve Grady, because Graydon helps. Graydon sponsored me since I was like 17 on dirt bikes. We had, we had something going on before the quads. So and I got back involved with him on the quads, and I went to Steve and I said, Hey, I'm thinking we make Nerf bars different than what uh, Clark had, but I'm thinking... You know, I was thinking if you put metal, it's just gonna all the mud's gonna be on top. It's gonna make it heavy. It's not, you know, the mud's gonna get stuck on top of the metal, right? To keep your feet from going in. Thinking aluminum, right? I thought about NASCAR with the window nets. I said, "What if we put nets on the Nerf bars?" He's like, "Yeah, that'd work." I said, "I think it'll work great." I said, "But you know, who can we make how make this?" So he knew of a company that he bought product from. It's called a uh, GSM Graham Sheet Metal. GSM was what most people knew him by. So they owned Ancra and they owned Interam Handlebars. So they made tie-downs. Excuse me, they had not Anchor POSA. P-O-S-A, POSA tie-downs. And Interam Handlebars. So they had the tube benders and everything there to build the handlebars to make the Nerf bar. And they had the tie-down material to make the nets out of. So that's basically how the Nerf bar with net came about. We built a prototype for my quad, showed up at Ascot motocross night racing. And I heard everything. Well, what do you think you're going to do? Fly with those uh, wings on your quad fro? You? <laughs> Everybody's making fun of them and everything, right? And, uh, every, you know, because they, they looked out of place because they're, you know, not used to seeing those big bars on the side of the quads. So everybody was making fun of them. And uh, that was eighty five, and then eighty six. It was mandatory that you had to run nerf bars with nets. And all the, all the rule book changed. Mickey Thompson, you had to have nerf bars with nets. So that's that's how the uh, the nerf bar with nets came about. Me and Steve Graydon came up with those and built them off my quad. And and that was
1: the the first guy, the first company. As I remember, I remember. Gosh, you know what? If I look hard enough, I think we still have a set of those nerf bars.
2: Probably. The grain ones? Yep. Yeah, probably. They, they, they evolved over time, but yeah. That's that's how it all started though. But you couldn't ride a national or Mickeys without a nerf bar when that's it and they uh, from 86 on. Y- yeah, and and the heel guard
1: thing, I think, was is something that they needed as well. And we would take the heel guards off for the longest time. Now we make aftermarket heel guard nerf bar setups. So you take the stock stuff off and put better foot pegs on with with better heel guards and nerf bars.
2: I never wanted heel guards back then. I, I trimmed my rear fender, the bottom part, I cut it up higher so I could put my foot down behind the foot peg. In case if I got locked onto another person's quad, I didn't have to get off the quad and pull it off. Like if you got locked on their rear wheel, right? From right. A bumper up on top of them. You know, you get wedged on a quad. Yep. I, I I I cut it out where I could put my feet in between the backside of the foot pegs and the fender, and I can put my feet and stand on the ground, and I could grab the handlebars and and pull the quad off without getting off the quad. But I never really thought about you know putting Gilgards on for that that reason alone
1: so I take it you've ran into the back or been wedged a few times Oh no I've period. never hit nobody
2: <laughs> 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 um, ask, not, ask all the old guys they they'll, they'll tell you <laughs> no,
1: I'm not believing that yeah yeah were there anything else that you guys developed? Um, because Graydon just didn't make nerf bars. He got involved in some other stuff too.
2: Yeah, the V bars, the handlebars, the V bars, that was my idea. I decided that I wanted something different than that was available. I liked a different end and a different height and stuff, and there wasn't available. So we ended up making the V-Bars. Originally we made them out of uh uh carbon steel and it was at Gorman um, Racetrack one time, and I was going up the hill where you go up and you hang a U-turn and you come off the drop-off. Well, going up the hill, it's real rough, so you're hanging back, clicking gears, going up this real rough uphill. And next thing I knew, the handlebar snapped off at where the V-bars go up and they meet meet the bar. Oh, right there, they snap my right right throttle hand. And I'm le- I'm hanging off the back of it, you know, wheeling up all the bumps, the rough stuff. Oh.
1: And,
2: and the handlebar snapped. so I'm falling I fell off the back of the quad, pulling the throttle wide open more because I stretched the throttle cable, and the quad oh. shot off the track and I mowed over like about I don't know, five to ten people that were standing on the side of the track. back. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so then we ended up uh, making them. handlebars out of chrome ollie that that was uh i was the crash test dummy on that one and didn't didn't you guys come up
1: with a kill switch too
2: um no i don't know who came up with that i know graden sold them and i got them all from him but uh the they were those plug-in the the red plug-in ones that shorted out all the time and then Tommy Burba at Pro Designs came up with his setup, and there was no need to reinvent the wheel after that one. That one was bulletproof. Right, and then, you know,
1: uh, Yamaha's copied it, and a couple other people have, too.
2: Yeah, you probably had a patent at one point, but it probably ran out. Yeah, I don't know
1: sold a shit. I mean, for a while there, that was the only kill switch you could buy.
2: Can we break for one second? Yes, sir. Okay, I just got to go to the restroom. I'll be right back. For you. Okay. You know, it is getting old. Your bladder doesn't hold well.
1: up. <laughs> and we're back. All right. Um, where when you dealt with Graydon, DG was also doing a lot of a,
2: a lot of stuff. And actually, DG helped me back then too. I got all my canned carburetors from them. Right, they they were the guys to buy
1: them from. Right, forever. right, yeah. And, and then, uh, later on, another company came in, but that, I mean, you bought we bought carburetors from them. There was a lot of stuff that you would get from Graden and DG because those were the the companies, the, the, you know, that had the ATV stuff for yeah, such then,
2: a long, long time. And then, uh, white—I mean, not uh, not white brothers. Uh, DG—they hooked me up with uh, Calfab. So right. I got my Calfab aluminum swing arms through them, and, and then we built some uh, Chromali bottom A-arms for the Suzuki back in the early days in 85. Wow. That's, yeah, that's I, was, I, was, I was bending and breaking the stock A-arms. On that bike? I could see that. The Suzuki, yeah. So yeah. uh, Calfab built the first Chromali A-arms off my quad back in the day
1: standard width or did they try to go wider
2: no the standard width just needed something that wouldn't break i was breaking everything break i broke the frames in half and i mean i just two weeks on a brand new quad i destroy the frame the center backbone you know the, the center backbone what is it about well, i don't know two and a half three inches right break, the, that was, break those things in half so I got to the point by 86, I knew just to get a new quad, strip it to the frame and and put gussets and brackets everywhere on it, everywhere that I'd break them. I mean, I'd break it everywhere. The whole frame just started falling apart on early days. Wow. And that was just the 85, 86 that you had that issue with? Uh, the 500, too. Yeah. I actually broke a cylinder in half on the 500 from flexing the handlebars. It was making the frame go back and forth and a head stay broke the the cracked the cylinder right at the intake broken broke the cylinder in half. wow that was on the LT500s
1: man that that's incredible i mean i've seen a lot of 500 cylinders break um, some of it you just think is fatigue um, because the material that suzuki used probably wasn't the best
2: yeah it was it was actually we you know, the head stays come down, they got two bolts from the frame and one bolt on the yep. top, the triangle. Yep. We we made like a linkage that went down and then came forward so it had flex to it. Because I would flex the frame so bad in rough stuff from being mounted on the pegs and, and, you know, death grip on the bars. It would basically bend the frame back and forth to where it could be going back and forth like this. And then break the cylinder in half. I kept breaking cylinders and we didn't know what the reason was at first. We figured it out. Barner helped me figure that out.
1: Yeah, that that, that that's a name from the past as well.
2: Yeah, he you built know. some fast motors on the Suzuki's. My 86 Suzuki was a rocket ship.
1: He he was wild from what I heard.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Barney was wild, man.
1: Didn't he get the Suzuki gig to, to, uh, to do the motors?
2: He, you know, they I know they had uh they were working with a bunch of guys. I I remember Paul Turner and him and maybe even Billy Keith. Keefe from uh Clem. Yeah. Bill bought Clem, right from Harry. But yeah, I, I remember. Because uh, I wasn't on the factory team, but I remember that that they were testing all these different engine builders' engines, and then decided who they were going to use. And I don't think all the riders, <clears throat> I don't think all the riders used the same engines. I think they used different engine builders on factory Suzuki. if I remember, right?
1: I just remember the story that I was told about um, one of the Suzuki guys came in complaining that his bike didn't have enough top in to varner and they stood it up on its grab bar and they ripped the pipe off of it and he got a rat tail file out and filed the exhaust port that sounds like varner and then put it back together and said they right some wild
2: crap man. he used to blow my mind on the stuff you do
1: yeah i mean that's metal shavings
2: didn't care just run it yeah funny story was uh Terry did my motor and Denton's motor, right in in '86. And uh, well, I used to leave my bike at Varner's shop and sort of dent when he, you know, I'd do B and stuff to him. I guess one t- day when I wasn't there, he let Denton ride my bike down the street. He's like, "Let me ride Brian's bike." They didn't tell me back then. I found out years later that that this is what happened. He rode my bike. And uh, my 250 Suzuki. And uh, then when I I came over and Denton wasn't there, his bike was there. And Varner goes, hey, go try Gary's bike. And he didn't tell me that Gary rode my bike at that point, right? I went and rode his bike and I was like, this thing is slow, man. It was like, it was just a torque motor, right? (laughs) He had the, he had the, uh, he put Suzuki RM250 ignition on mine, a button mag, right. And on Denton's, he had this big, huge brass flywheel weight that he put on on Gary's motor because he wanted this, this real low torque, and I wanted something that just exploded when you hit it, right? Right. And I guess Gary's comment to Terry was, "How does Fry ride this thing, man? This thing's, you know, it's too pipey, too too uh, explosive." And I was like, "How does Denton win on this thing? This thing is slow. <laughs> I was like, "You got two different you know riders on the same engine builder, and the our motors couldn't have been more opposite, and he couldn't ride my motor, and I couldn't win on his motor. So it was like, it's kind of funny how one motor works for one rider but not for the other rider yeah its it, it's all about what
1: you desire." for your skill set and the feel that you want as it, as it comes out of the turn or how you're going down the straightaway.
2: Well, know? it was more, it was more Denton's 135 and I'm 200. Right. So, yeah. So I need something that's going to light the tires up as soon as you hit it. He need something that's not going to light the tires up and and just be a torque monster. But did yeah. you
1: know, did you know Gary when he raced motorcycles?
2: Um actually when I was race was uh, the Irwindale days when I was a kid when I got you know hurt when I was 14 I used to watch him and David Taylor and and all all the pros there Mike Bell all the guys I mean Denton was like my hero when I was a kid I used to watch him race in the pro class uh, it was just like wow man these guys are badass right right so, Yeah, so later on in life, I ended up start, you know, being his main competition in quads, and it was kind of, you know, he went from my being my hero to somebody I don't like and want to (laughs) beat. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. Me and Denton, me and Denton are good friends now, but we hated each other back then because we both wanted to win so bad. Right. It was like, yeah, not. I wouldn't say hate, but. We didn't like each other when it came to racing, yeah. You know? But we talked about well, that later on in life too. Both of us. So I was like, "Yeah." I told, he told me, "I used to hate you." I said, oh, I used to hate you too." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, competitors. Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, we're friends now, dude. I bought my warrior trailer from him back in two thousand. Yeah, he saved me about six thousand dollars on my when I bought my trailer, but. Yeah, I mean we're we're friends now. I went to this Hall of Fame party out at Glen Helm when he had that just recently, right? Uh, yeah, he invited me to the Hall of Famer. It was, but yeah, we're we're buddies now. Back then, though, we wanted to kill each other on the track. Well, that's because you were competitors, you know. I mean, yeah. it's he, he didn't like losing, and neither did I. So, and usually, it was you know, in the early days, it was me or him were usually the ones that were winning a lot of races I should say there was other people that won but it was uh, definitely we had our battles I got my nickname from something he said my (laughs) right Right. we're at um, Night motocross and they had this whoop section and I came around the corner and he was in front of me and I just thought I could probably just pull the front end up and wheel tap through all those whoops The denton was he was finessing through them and double 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 through the whoops little whoops that they had there at ascot and i went through through and grabbed grabbed another gear pulled the front end up high and just wheel tapped the rear rear all the way through the whoops went by him like he was sitting still and he came back came over to me in the pits and he's like dude you went through that those whoops like an animal." Yeah, uh, and, uh, and then the next week I showed up at the ascot with animal on the ass of my leathers. And I told Gary, I'm like <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I did it to kind of rub it in his nose, you know, that's how that's how it kind of stuck.
1: That's too cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you... Gary, Gary gave me the nickname animal. I just went with it when he said it. Did you get to go back
1: to any of the nationals?
2: Yeah, in '86, uh, Gary and I were the uh, U.S. Suzuki riders. It wasn't a, the factory team like they had in '87. In '87, it was more of like a like a factory uh, panic box fan flight of the races, all paid you know salary from Suzuki. In '86, but '85 of the fall, Suzuki picked me and Denton to ride for us suzuki through their marketing department so all of our our expense budget came from marketing not from the race department right and they called uh and a meeting for me and gary and we met in some fancy restaurant in brea and there was uh some it was three japanese guys that i remember and mel harris who i just seen passed away not too long ago i guess mel harris from suzuki um, Remember, I think Joe Colombero might have been there in that meeting. But anyway, uh, like I said, I started racing quads from a a bet. And then in October of 85, I'm sitting in a meeting to get a factory Suzuki support, right? And uh, me and Denton are sitting there. And they offered us, I think it was one quad and $2,500 worth of parts for the year at their costs. So, you know, that's probably like double the cost or even higher because that's what they pay for it, right? Not what the dealer sells it for or the retail pays for it. Right. It was $2,500, one quad, and I think it was $5,000 in traveling expenses is what they came up with that they're offering us. And I was like, (laughs) bitching. I was like, wow, you know, I just sit there in amazement that I was even sitting in that meeting, you know? That all this stuff just happened so quickly, you know, from a start of quad racing to where where it was where I was at at that point, and uh, I would have signed on the dotted line right then, but I just kind of sat back and listened because I knew Gary had experience dealing with factories with his motorcycle racing, you know, the right stuff. Sure. Uh, and Gary's like, "No, no, that's not enough," and I'm like looking at him like. What do you mean? You know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just keep my mouth shut. And Gary's gone. I need at least two quads. I need five thousand dollars in parts. I need ten thousand dollars in travel expenses. So he basically doubled what they were offering him. And I was just like, didn't say a word because I'm like, well, he's I'm, whatever he's going to get, I'm going to get. I think, right? So we right. both walked out of there with the what the deal the deal that Denton cut. I walked out. I was like, "Hey, Gary, thanks a lot," because I didn't, I was ready to sign the first <laughs> at the beginning. So that was that was the money that they wanted us to do the nationals in '86 on. That didn't include uh, anything for Mickey's or anything else. It was just that's that that deal was that contract was to race the nationals in '86. So that's how I ended up going and doing the nationals. So we had to have our own van. Our own mechanics and you know they would they didn't give us the ten thousand dollars like one lump sum they uh just cut us like a couple grand for each each time we'd go out and out of you know just take off traveling for the race so we didn't spend all the money I guess and then run out of money at the end of the season so they kind of monitored our money and didn't give it to us all one shot well, that's pretty good right yeah oh yeah yeah I mean I ended up with you know, walked out of there with probably $25,000 more than I had in my pocket when I walked in, you know, counting all the bikes and parts and and the traveling money.
1: So $10,000 back then to travel, how many events did you go to?
2: All of them. And then I took Barry Calpris with me, and his his parents paid half of half the traveling expenses. We split it in half. So I ended up making some money off of the travel expense money. I didn't spend all the money to get there. So, so I, and uh, actually hooked up with uh, Greg Clark too. We put him in the van and did a couple of them too. So we split it three ways. So, so I always, helped, to, uh, yeah, it was my van and my trailer. So I'd, I'd try to get other riders to come with us and and hook up and and uh, split the cost. I ended up using some of that 10 grand to put in my bank account to live on.
1: Well, that's a good deal, right? Yeah. 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 And you and Gary didn't travel together, even though you were basically teammates?
2: No. That's when we started hating each other, because we're both trying to win nationals. (laughs) 85, it wasn't so bad, but 86, it was on. Did they pay? And I I came out and won the first uh, A1 race at Anaheim in 86, so... That didn't sit well with Gary either because he ended up second. In fact, he was, he, was, he was winning and I passed him in the last. So I, I won the first model and he got second. And second model, he was in front of me and I ended up passing him and beating him. So then it was, it, it, That's when, that's probably when he
1: probably started hating me a lot. <laughs> Did they pay good contingency?
2: Oh, it's, just, it's just, yeah, because you had to ride uh, the Golden States to qualify. And I think they were paying like uh, it's either I think it was like 350 bucks first at a CMC Golden State for a Suzuki contingency, and they paid like down to fifth, you know. I think it was down to fifth or so. So it'd be like 350, 250, 150, 150 or something like that and then you made the the perts money also from CMC so go out and make $500 when in a CMC race on a quad back in the 80s you know so basically i tried right. to hit as many races as i could you know every every race that paid i'd hit every race i could you know yeah cuz that that paid well Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. I I was able to make enough money racing that I ended up quitting my job in '85. (laughs) Yeah, actually, too, like with '85, I started the first, I got my quad in like April, I think. And the first race was, uh, first big race was the LA Coliseum, uh, Suzuki quad cross during the super cross. I didn't know it, but my bike was cutting out all day and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I washed it the night before because I went out and test, did some testing at a little field that I had by my house. And uh, after I washed the bike and went to the, you know, ran it up down the street, everything ran bitching. Uh, the Coliseum and every jump I hit, and every bump, the thing would start sputtering and cutting out. Couldn't figure out what was wrong with the motor, right? And it would run bitching and then it would just start sputtering off the jumps and, and every bump I'd hit. So I was in the pits and asking everybody. I'd run it up and down the pits on the asphalt and it wouldn't sputter one bit. Right? I'm like, what the heck? I'm pulling all the tank and everything off, looking for wires shorting and stuff, and uh, changed out the dead man switch. Just couldn't figure it out. And so anyway, I ended up going and racing without fixing the problem, and the bike was just cutting out and sputtering. Then it'd run great and. And Clark was in first, and I was in second, and I'd catch up to him, and then it stuttered, and I'd, he'd gap me, and, I mean, it was just cat and mouse the whole time. I mean, I was just like, every time I think I'm going to pass him, the thing, would start cutting out. And then I ended up getting second, and John Neary and his dad were parked next to us. And I even was talking to his dad seeing see if he could help me figure it out because Pops was pretty smart about everything, right? He knew He knew how to work on stuff. And uh, after the race was over, I come in and he walks over with a T-handle Phillips and pops the ignition cover off the side of my quad. He didn't say anything. He just walked over and and took my ignition cover off. And I'm like, I look at him and just water just poured out of my ignition from when I washed my bike the night before. It, it somehow it got in through the gasket. And he's <laughs> like, I'm like, why didn't you... Tell me that earlier today, and he goes because I didn't want you to beat my kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "All right, I got your number. I know what you're about now, Foss." But yeah, I was I was good friends with Neri and his dad. They were they were good people. But oh I first, man, I was like you, sob. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's yeah. too classic, right there. I, probably,
2: I I guarantee I would have won that race. I was. I was going faster than everybody in practice, but the bike was just cutting. But oh god! I mean, That's and just... that was like six weeks after I bought the quad, and I'd say two within a month and a half, two months later, I had. I mean, everybody wanted to. All the companies wanted to sponsor quad racers back then. It was like the whole sport was just going on fire, right? Right. And uh, I had like. Like twenty something sponsors of free stuff on my quad after like just three months of racing quads, and then like I said, the next thing I know in October, I'm signing a contract with Suzuki. I'm just like going, where did all this shit come from? You know, it was just like you know, it just happened.
1: That's so cool. That is so so cool.
2: But I kind of took a different attitude because of what happened with my motorcycle racing because I I dedicated myself. I was at the gym in the morning i'd burn five gallons out of my 480 practicing every day and i'd be at the gym at night and that was and then i'd race up to five times a week sometimes because we used to have all the night racing back then wednesday night thursday night, friday saddleback saturday and wherever on sunday so i mean i was riding all the time and at the gym all the time and i've put a lot of work into it thinking I was going to go race supercross in the nationals and everything just, you know, it it just disappointed me big time. I was depressed over what happened. And, uh, when the quad thing came up so damn easy, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to go have fun this time. I'm not, I'm going to have fun. And when the fun's over, I'm done. And that's kind of why in 88, it was the fun was over for the, after making money all those years and then not making it it was like i'm over it
1: (laughs) right right
2: yeah yeah so i had a lot of fun i wasn't so serious as some of the other guys i think that's why gary got so pissed off all the time because he knew i wasn't putting in the effort that he was he told me uh that when he invited me to come to the hall of fame he told me he goes i never told you this before brian he goes but you made me bust my ass and you helped me be a better rider to win those championships. He said, cause I wanted to beat you so bad that I had to work my ass off training to be able to beat you on rough tracks. That's, I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty cool, Gary. Thanks for saying that, you know, that was just like a year ago, you know, that he said that. So
1: for for something like that to come out of that guy's mouth that's you know that's a that's a huge yeah
2: Yeah. you never told me that before so i was like well that's really cool Gary. i'm glad you told me that before i die (laughs) yeah (laughs) getting up there in age you know i'll be 60 next week so
1: (laughs) that's still you're still young brother
2: yeah no my body's not young it's beat up
1: well i mean that happens
2: right yeah, yeah, I just have a lot of problems with my knees and stuff and my my club foot and stuff. I get a lot of issues. Uh I I'm sure.
1: Yeah, but, but as long as you as long as you can keep the rest of you healthy, you
2: should be okay, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just saying I I'm in no no position to get on a motorcycle or anything. I I hung up I hung up that 92 the last time I was laying on the emergency slab. No more no more dirt bikes, huh? Uh, I was race I was racing dirt bikes in ninety-two again and I got hurt out in the field. We were out got a new track in and I made a big mistake and hit a boulder the size of a Volkswagen when I was airborne. I kind of cross rutted off the face of a jump or we building into the, the track in the field and it shot me right into these big boulders that were like basically the size of a beetle Volkswagen. Ouch. I went yeah, I, I flew like 20, 30 feet from the takeoff of the jump and landed front wheel first into this huge boulder. And I bent my knee completely backwards, ripped everything out, and broke my wrist from just the impact of the handlebars snapping into my arm. I had a big dinner dinner fork. But my knees, they they fixed it. I didn't have insurance back then, and they took a year before I got surgery, so I had to wear a knee brace for a year. and I was getting married. That happened in uh, February, and I got married in May <laughs> of '92. Uh, I was walking with a, tux with a knee brace underneath to be able to get down the aisle, and, sh- and I had my surgery like in December of that year, '92. But how did how did your wife take the
1: racing and the injuries? Um,
2: she was fine with it. She she rode. She she was riding before I knew her, so that's what attracted me to her. She had a stolen milk crate with a helmet and boots in it, so I was like, "You're up, you're up my speed." <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. This is a stolen milk crate, you know. If you're not a real motorization, unless you got a stolen milk crate in your garage, right? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: didn't didn't we all worry that they were going to come and collect them and yeah. fine us? because it said yeah. what was it a what, what was it a five hundred dollar fine if you got caught with them
2: yeah probably
1: <laughs> and everybody had one
2: everybody yeah that was their that was your stand for your motorcycle <laughs> right yeah we you had to get the one with the metal ring in it though the plastic ones with cave.
1: <laughs> correct
2: correct yeah you had to get the right one yeah, yeah No. she she rode and stuff too she had her own quad after we got together, I got her on quads and stuff, so she did a lot of riding on quads.
1: Did your family grow up going to the sand dunes?
2: Um but my my parents divorced when I was four or five, and then my stepdad was the one that got us into the motorcycles. he he got a when I was like second grade, he got a the, the first years of a like seventy or seventy one ATC ninety mm-hmm. big balloon tires. so I learned how to ride. On that when I was younger and then I like I said at nine I got the one twenty five Suzuki uh they bought me and my brother the Suzuki one twenty five ts is ts one twenty five and they had the lights on them their plan was well we can we lived right down the the street from Saddleback back then on land on Chapman right by the uh, orange freeway and uh so we Bought the uh, street legal ones because that's all they had back then. My parents' idea was we could ride around on the street with the you know them driving us on the back. And then we could ride them in the dirt. Well, that lasted about maybe two or three weeks because we broke all the taillights and blinkers and everything off, crashing them, learning how to ride, right? So they got stripped of dirt bikes right away. And then uh, the following year, my, my uh, stepdad bought my mom a TS-185. And then he bought him a, a Yamaha MX three sixty, uh 1973. And and then, we, pre- then we started riding, not we started riding uh Garmin in different places camping overnight in the back of a pickup truck with a camper shell just you know, just out playing and uh, wreck riding and got all the kids in the neighborhood to start riding. And my stepdad took a four-wheel trailer and stretched two racks on the back, two more on the front. So he turned it into an eight-rail trailer and got all the the neighbors in the neighborhood to buy their kids' motorcycles. And we'd take a truck full of kids in the back of a camper chill and go riding every weekend. And That's then they And so cool. then they got into the dunes, and he bought a a, a turbocharged Honda, Dyko Daiko sand rail. I don't know if you remember them back then. They were real shorties. Okay. I mean... It was, you know, sick rail back then with a Honda Civic front wheel drive motor in the rear and with a uh, turbo. Yep. He got that. And and, uh, then we started going to Glamis a lot. And that's when I got the TT500 and put the paddle tire on and converted it into the racing bike. So, yeah, we, we always did the dunes. I did the dunes for up till probably. Last dune trip I made was probably two thousand or two thousand one. I quit going after that when we had kids and just getting too crazy out there. So
1: your your kids didn't go to the dunes with you?
2: Just when they were really young. Yeah, they were really young. I used to strap, I had a sand I bought a sand rail after that accident ninety two mm-hmm. on, on the dirt bike when I did my knee and my wrist in ninety three. I bought a sand rail and. Uh, we had our first kid in 96, uh, Kyle, and then 98, we had our other son, Blake. So we took them out there once when they were like three and five and strapped them both in the passenger seat of my sand rail. <laughs> They both fit in one bucket. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, and then Kyle, he was on a quad already then, so he was riding a little quad 50 around too. But yeah, it was you know, you know how glamis is. It, it just got really crazy and wild. And seeing some friends get jacked up really bad. I had another friend, uh, it was after we quit going. His 15 year old son got killed out there on a dirt bike, got hit by our sandrail. rail. Uh, it just, mm. after doing it from the early days and then watching glamis evolve into the chaos and wildness. and you know, people going too fast every different direction and killing people. I just said, man, I don't want to take my kids out of here and have anything happen. So we we hung up and and I took my uh my older boy, he he wanted to race since he was three years old, so we couldn't race till he was four, so we started racing when he was four.
1: And that uh, the younger one didn't didn't take it up?
2: Um, he, he didn't want anything to do with a dirt bike because he's seen his, his uh, brother get hurt. You know, he, he had some injuries when he was young on 65s and stuff and he just had no interest of it. And then I got him a quad when he was nine, an Apex 90. Right. Got him one of those when he was nine and, and then he started racing quads and he was kicking ass and winning a lot on all the time on my squad and, uh, he blew it up on a Thanksgiving weekend at El Mirage. We went out camping with a bunch of people. And he blew it up on the dry lake bed because he didn't know he had to let off and <laughs> let the cylinder get some oil in there, right? So he just rode it wide open until it blew up the first ride he took off on it. And I wasn't riding with him. He was on the on the dry lake bed. So he right. blew it up, and we were there for three days. And, and our, my buddy had a, his ex-wife's TPR 125 there. And he's like, well, oh, Blake wants to ride it. You can ride that, you know, because he didn't have anything to ride after he blew up the bike. I didn't have any parts to fix it. So I uh, got him on the, he didn't want to ride it. And I go, come on, you can ride it right here on the, and it's all flat on the dry leg bed. And then he got on that thing and he loved it. And then I was like, well, I go, you want one? You want a motorcycle? Say, yeah. So I bought him a TTR 125. He rode that thing for a little bit. Then I got him a, CRF 150 big wheel. I bought him a brand new big wheel and he's been riding ever since. But he never got much into the racing. He raced a couple races. But he he never had any interest in uh going racing full time like Kyle did. Kyle was race racing since he was four every weekend till four, I think. He's 26 now, I believe. That's that's
1: pretty crazy. Ryan, I want to ask if i can invite you back because i know we didn't cover everything
2: oh yeah (laughs) i had a long career so yeah i know i know we didn't cover a lot we we only hit the highlights and
1: and i want to take a deep dive into some of the things
0: The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at atvtalkpodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience. Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International Inc. offers host MC and guest speaking services at events, builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world, and they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to Tech International at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms. And you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter.